The scripture says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jason McElwain came to his 15 minutes of fame in the year 2006. He was appointed as the manager of the Greece Athena High School by basketball coach Jim Johnson. And on February 15, 2006, he played in a basketball game against Spencerport High School for the division title. Maybe you remember seeing the video of this basketball game. Greece Athena got a large lead, so as often as the case when you get a big league, you, you feel free to put in some of your players who aren't as talented, not your top-tier players. Well, they decided to put in their basketball manager, Jason McElwain, and he played the last four minutes and 19 seconds of the game. After initially missing two shots, McElwain made six three-point shots and one two-pointer, finishing with 20 points. And as the bu- final buzzer rang, the crowd ran onto the court in celebration for Jason. Uh, it was especially encouraging and amazing because he is autistic. And so this one who was thought to be nothing to this basketball team except for team manager became something that day. And it was an exciting thing to watch. Well, you can't press the analogy too far. But consider who we were before we came to Christ. And now who we are in Christ. See, because of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, we who are measured as zeros in the eyes of the world are now counted as God's special and holy people. Because he has redeemed us by Christ crucified, nobodies become somebodies in the economy of God's kingdom. Consider the position that we hold now in Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. Now, it will never appear that way to those in the world until the last day. And so we're reminded from John in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We are reminded that we are God's children, and what we shall be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We will spend this life as zeros in the eyes of the world, and yet in the age to come. And even now, we are the children of God and heirs of his kingdom. 
And our only boast is in the Lord. After all, we didn't do anything to make ourselves God's people. We didn't do anything to make ourselves somebody's. It's all by the grace of God who loved us and gave his son for our redemption. Now this passage is set within the larger appeal of Paul to the Corinthian believers in verse 10 that they become unified, that they become united, perfectly united together. There were divisions, a lot of them. They existed because the Corinthians were trading God's values for the Corinthian values. Instead of uh, seeking purity, they sought prestige and power. They wanted to become successful and great in the eyes of the world. And this was tearing them apart. It was ripping them apart. They even began choosing sides based on who they thought were the better leaders, pitting themselves against one another and their leaders against one another in their own pride. So what does Paul do? He reminds them of the cross of Christ. He reminds them of Christ crucified. He didn't come to baptize people under his own name and gather followers for for himself. He preached Christ crucified. Foolishness and weakness to most people, but there were some, some from all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles and Greeks, who believed. And they were united together, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their class, no matter who they were. They were united together because of Christ and his cross. So Paul reasons with them. How could you possibly be aligned with those who think the cross is stupid? How could you oppose your brothers and sisters? How could you become divided against one another when you are united together in what the world sees as foolishness? And now in our passage this morning, Paul continues his argument. Here he's showing them the utter foolishness of their current course, of the current path they're taking. They've been pursuing greatness as the world measures it. And the reason this is foolish is because of their own circumstances and the purposes of God in the world. See, it turns out they've been pursuing the very things in the world that God is active destroying They're pursuing power. They're pursuing wealth. They're pursuing wisdom according to the world. And these are the very things God is overturning and bringing to nothing. So it's utterly foolish for them to do this. We're reminded in this passage of God's great purposes in the world, namely this truth, what is sometimes expressed as the great reversal. God uses small things to take down the great things. God uses small things to take down great things. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose, you see this refrain, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. You notice those parallel contrast. There are the wise things, the strong things, the things that are, but all these things are taken down. They are shamed, Paul says, by the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things, the despised things, the things that are nothing. God uses small things to take things down. It's almost like he likes to do things the hard way, right? Who would have thought that a little Hebrew baby helplessly floating down the river would one day lead God's people out of slavery and walk through the Red Sea on dry land. And why would God whittle down Gideon's army 
to 300 men before destroying the Midianites? Or what about the little shepherd boy, David, who would defeat the giant Goliath with a stone and a sling? He looked like nothing, but he would become the king over God's people. And then, of course, there was a young girl, a virgin, of little account, who would give birth to the Savior of the world. There's a boy who gave Jesus his five loaves and two fish to feed thousands. And through the simple preaching of the gospel, uh, of preaching of Peter at Pentecost, about 3,000 souls were saved. Through the ministry of Jesus' 12 disciples, common men, the world was changed. So why does he do things the hard way? Why does God go about using small things to destroy the great things? Well, it's one thing to win a battle by throwing all of your strength and all of your resources and all of your soldiers at the enemy, but it's something totally different to simply brush them off with a wave of your hand. And God has chosen the simple and weak things to shame the so-called great things of the world. And he has done this so that no one may boast before him. So that he receives all the glory. So that no one may boast before him. The small and weak things that God uses can't boast. After all, the victory isn't theirs, but the Lord's. Why did God set his love upon the people of Israel? Not because they were the mightiest, not because they were the greatest. The scripture says it's because they were the least. He chose them for his glory. And the great can't boast because they get leveled to the ground. What they thought was important, what they thought was impressive has been brought down to nothing. The very things they thought would cause them to ascend to the heights has brought them down to the grave. In verse 29 Paul envisions that great last day, the day of the Lord, when great and small, rich and poor, high class and low class will stand before the Lord. And do you know who will have a leg up on that day? Do you know who will be able to buy their way in? Do you know who will be able to point to their pedigree or wisdom or strength and say, I can boast about what I have accomplished. I can boast about who I am. And the answer is no one will boast before him. On that day, those who boasted in their own wisdom will be put to shame. Those who gloried in their own strength will be put to shame. Those who boasted in the fact that they were something will be put to shame because no one can boast before him. So why would the Corinthians become starstruck by those who were wise and strong in something when God would bring it all to nothing? It made no sense. In their pursuit to become something, they were actually putting themselves on a course to become nothing. And friends, don't you see how we Christians also become starstruck by those who are great and mighty and influential in this world? Just as one example, why do you think there's such a rush among Christians to put forward any movie star or sports star who who claims the name of Christ? It's like we're in a rush to push them forward as a representative of who we are. We want to appear great before those in the world. Now, I'm thankful when a brother or sister is given a great platform and he uses it to proclaim Christ. I'm so thankful when I see that. They should do that. But I can't help but also think there's some sort of hope that if we could just get someone influential or someone important 
to name Christ, then we would be legitimized among the people who know that we are Christians. We'll be legitimized as believers. You see, if that person who's influential and successful and beautiful claims Christ, we must not be as foolish as everybody thinks we are. We're not so weak, now are we? Or maybe kind of on a local level, we might think something like this. Maybe if we just had some really influential leaders in our church from the community. What if we could get the richest, the wealthiest people in Rollsville to come and be a part of our church? the most influential in our community, well, then we could really make a difference. Then we could really accomplish something. Then God would really get glory. Just think about, for instance, all we could do with the extra offering that came in. Just think of what we could do if we had those that everyone respected in our community. Think of what God could do with all of those resources. But you see, when we begin to think like this, What we are doing is revealing what it is we are dependent upon and confident in. It becomes less about being confident in the Lord and dependent upon Him and more about confidence in the things that the world values. Power and strength and wisdom and money. We have our hopes pinned on something rather than God and His mercy. Where your confidence is, there will your pursuits be also. Wherever your confidence is, your pursuits will be there too. You're driving at what you hope in, what you trust in. So let us take stock of ourselves right now. Let us take stock of our pursuits, and then if we see our pursuits, we'll see where our confidence is. Consider your, your pursuits in your work. What, are you, what is it that you're seeking in your vocation? Are you, are you simply seeking to try and get ahead, to get bigger, to get more influential, to climb the ladder of success? Or are you seeking to use the gifts God has given you to serve Him for His glory? Are you seeking to serve others? Do you remember what Jesus said to His disciples? It won't be like it is with the rest of the world with you all. right? They seek greatness in measurements of the world. And yet, I tell you, Jesus says, if you want to be great among yourselves, you'll be the servant of all. What would it mean for you to become a servant in your workplace? To make that your pursuit? How can I use the influence, the strength, the abilities God has given me in order to serve and love my neighbor? What are you pursuing in your work? And what does that reveal about where your confidence is? Or what about your family? What is it that you are pursuing as a family? What is it you are pursuing in your husband and wife relationship? What is it pursuing as, what are you pursuing as you're raising your children? What are you teaching them to value in this life? Maybe you just want to make sure they are good, respectable citizens of America. Are you content with that? Or is there something greater to pursue? Well, maybe you think, well, I'm not really pursuing the, the values of this world in my work or in my family. I'm not pursuing uh, you know, power or greatness according to the world's values. But consider, what are you pursuing in your church? 
It, it may be that you're just kind of sitting on the fringes of church life, and that reveals something about your confidence. You don't have much confidence in the work of the church or in how God uses his church to carry forth his kingdom. And so I think what, what my encouragement would be to you is consider what that means for your pursuit in the church. Are you serving? Are you seeking to proclaim the gospel? Are you seeking to see how you can serve the church so that the gospel message might be, might be proclaimed? God typically doesn't like to use the powerful things, the influential things, the, the wise things of this world. He has chosen instead to use weak things for his glory. And Paul says this is not only true of the general way of the world that he works, but it's also true of those in the church. It's true of those believers that Paul is writing to. This great reversal, he says, think about how this applies to you as a church. Corinthians, think about how this holds true in your case. When you were called brothers and sisters, who were you? Look back at verse 26. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Paul tells his brothers and sisters in Corinth to think back and consider their calling. He's talking about the day they heard the gospel and trusted in Jesus Christ. Consider your calling. Consider the circumstances of your calling. Yes, they made a choice to repent and believe. But God was working behind all of that to effectively call them to himself. They didn't call on him until he had first called on them. And when did God do this calling? What were the circumstances of their calling? Well, he chose them before the foundation of the world. And he called them, when did he call them? While most of them were zeros in the eyes of the world. They were nothing worth looking at. They were nothing worth saving, nothing worth keeping. But God called them by his grace. Look at the categories Paul uses here. The categories of wisdom, of power or influence, and of heritage. And he readily acknowledges that this is not a blanket statement, that there were some who were of some account in the congregation. But for the most part, they were of little account when it came to the prestige of the world. They were common folks. They were ordinary people in the middle and low classes. And you know, from my experience, this, at least in my experience, this has been true of just about every church I've been a part of. There are exceptions. Uh, there were exceptions where there were those who were well regarded, uh, highly regarded according to the world. But for, for the most part, all of us didn't add up to a whole lot. But think about what it is that Paul is trying to do here. Remember, these Corinthian believers are becoming divided from one another because they are aligning themselves with those they perceive as wise or influential or of noble birth. They're wanting to climb the ladder of success. They're wanting to align themselves with the beautiful people of their culture. And why wouldn't they? That's what the Corinthian culture was all about. It sounds like our culture, doesn't it? But Paul reminds them who they were when God called them so they might remember that God's value system is radically different than that of the world. God chose them. He called them when they were nothing in the eyes of the world. What do they think they're gaining by trading back 
to the world's value system, to the world's measurements of success. They weren't gaining anything, but they were losing a lot. When you trade God's value system for the world's, you always get ripped off. You always get the raw end of the deal. They thought they were stepping up in the world, but really they were stepping away from each other. They thought they were becoming more distinguished, but really they were becoming more divided. Maybe they were going up in the world's eyes, but in the church they were being torn apart. So this, this threatens a church's unity. When we adopt the world's values, it will drive us apart and get us off track in faithfulness to God. But if we remember who we were when God called us, it will pull us together in humility and love. We will have our values realigned with the values of God. You see, God not only chose the weak things in this world to shame the wise in the past, but He is actively doing it today. He is using small, ordinary, seemingly weak things in the world to shame the wise today. He was doing it among the believers in Corinth, and He's doing it in churches all around the world today. Listen to what Michael Horton says about what God is doing in the midst of His people. He says, CNN will not be showing up at a church that is simply trusting God to do extraordinary things through his ordinary means of grace delivered by ordinary servants. But God will. Week after week, these means of grace and the ordinary fellowship of the saints that nurtures and guides us throughout our life may seem frail, but they are jars that carry a rich treasure, Christ, and all his saving benefits. He's referencing Paul in 2 Corinthians 4-7, who says, We have this treasure of the gospel, of this message of Christ, in jars of clay, weak, frail, ugly jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We can be sure that God is working and will work in our midst, not because of our strength, not because of our power or influence, not because of our wealth, not because of our wisdom. We can have confidence that God will work among us because of and in spite of our weaknesses, because of our limitations and our smallness. For then, as we preach the gospel and faithfully live out its implications, it will be seen that the power belongs to God and not to us. Horton also reminds us of the kind of spiritual power we're talking about, the extraordinary things God is doing through the ordinary ministry of the Word and Sacraments. He says, The power of our activism, campaigns, movements, and strategies cannot forgive sins or raise the dead. This is what God is doing among us. He's forgiving sins and raising the dead to life through the ordinary preaching of the gospel. Through his ordinary means, he is raising the dead to life again. He is forgiving sins through the gospel. He nourishes us through simple elements like the bread and the cup that we will partake of today. He strengthens us by an ordinary word of grace spoken. 
And he does this through ordinary, weak, foolish people that he has called into his kingdom. And this gives us great humility because we know we're nothing without him. And this humility promotes unity because we will look out for the interests of others rather than simply our own. And it further unites us because we're all on board with the same mission, proclaiming Christ so that sinners might receive forgiveness and that those who are dead in their sins might receive new life and the resurrection from the dead. God has chosen the little things of this world to take down the great things. And this was true in the church of Corinth, and it's true for us. They were zeros in the eyes of the world, but look what they had become in Christ. They who were nothing had become something. If you are in Christ, you have become something, but it's only because you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have become something, but it's only because you're in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. The Corinthian believers had been nothing in the eyes of the world, but now they are in Christ. To be in Christ means you have been united to him in faith. He is the vine and you have been grafted on to him as you come to him in faith. But notice throughout these few verses how the sovereignty of God in salvation is emphasized. These brothers and sisters were called into the fellowship of His Son. They were chosen out of the world for God's purposes. And here, it is because of Him. It is by God's own doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Paul locates the ultimate cause of their union with Christ in God's will, in God's work. They did not, of their own free will, unite themselves to Christ. They did not yearn to be close to Him on their own initiative. They didn't strive by their own moral purity to become in Christ. Rather, God, by His sovereign initiative, brought them into union with Christ through the preaching of the gospel and through giving them ears to hear and hearts to respond in faith. And Paul says, Christ became to you wisdom from God. From your perspective, before you believed Christ crucified, it was not wisdom from God. But something happened when you heard the message. Something happened when you heard that Jesus was crucified on the cross for your sins. That he bled and died for you. That he lived for you. That he died the death you should have died. And that he rose from the dead in victory over evil and hell. Something clicked. A light came on all of the sudden. And it, be, it all began to make sense. And you saw Christ crucified for your sins as a wisdom that this world could never comprehend. This is wisdom from God. I love the image we are given in the hymn, And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. The fourth verse particularly gets me every time. Think about this. Imagine this and the circumstances of your own calling when you believed in Christ. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, and then we all sing with eagerness and joy. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose went forth and followed thee. My chains fell off. 
My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have clung to Christ in faith, resting in his work for you. Don't you see that your eyes have been opened, your chains have fallen off, and you have been set free? And it is all the doing of God. He rescued you. He saved you by his sovereign mercy and grace, and he has done it in the person and work of Christ, who has become to us wisdom from God. Paul goes on to further explain what he means that Christ is the wisdom of God for us. He says, Christ is our righteousness. Not that we have achieved some sort of moral quality before God, but Christ is our righteousness. I once sat in a church service in which the pastor kept going on and on about how righteous you needed to be if you were going to be accepted in the sight of God. And the people were soaking it in. And he came to the the climax and the ending of his appeal by saying, when you get stand there before God, you better be as close to perfectly righteous as you possibly can be. And in our day and age, and we might be tempted to think he had gone too far. But I knew he hadn't gone nearly far enough. For when we stand before the Lord, it won't be enough to be as close to perfection as we can get. That will be far, far short of what is due to our master. When we stand before the Lord, nothing will do except absolute perfection. Without blemish. Without sin. Perfectly pure before him. And our tendency will be to begin counting up all of our good deeds and weighing them against all of our sins and making resolutions to do better and to not sin so much and to try and be better people. Maybe there's some way we can kind of begin to reach the righteousness of God which He requires to stand before Him. But of course, it's a fool's errand. It can't be done. We've already failed. There's no chance for us anymore. Which is why we need a righteousness, not of our own, but one that comes to us from outside of ourselves. An alien righteousness, a righteousness which is foreign to us, a righteousness which is given to us, credited to our account, considered as though it were ours. And this is what we have in Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. And it is because of Him, it is because of Christ and His righteousness that He imputes to us that God now looks upon us with favor. And Christ has become our holiness. Christ has separated us out as God's holy and special people. As His special possession, we belong to Him because of Christ. And Christ is our redemption. We have been bought Purchased back from the dead by the blood of Christ. Any and all who turn from their sins and cling in faith to Christ. He is wisdom from God. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our redemption. Therefore, Paul concludes with a a quote from Jeremiah 9, 24. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The fuller quote from Jeremiah 9 is, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, 
That's Yahweh who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight. And Paul says, boast in the Lord. Meaning Christ, who is the everlasting God. The Christian pastor and rapper Shai Lin has a song called Jesus is Alive. And, and in that song, throughout the song, he lists all the great leaders, all the great philosophers of this world, the religious leaders of the world, the great entertainers of the past, and they are all dead, he says. But Jesus is alive. Isn't it sad how the world lifts people up and idolizes them to the point of worship? And then they die. They are no more. So a year before I was born, the so-called king, Elvis Elvis Presley, died. And then, a little more recently, another so-called king, the king of pop, Michael Jackson, died seven years ago. And then, on June 3rd of this year, the one who said he was the greatest died. After deteriorating health, like everyone before him, Muhammad Ali died. And you will too. And so will the wise of this world. And so will the strong of this world. And so will those who think that they are something in the eyes of this world. But in the end, none of that will matter. What will matter is that Jesus is alive. And those who make their boast in him will be alive. Let's pray together.